Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. Gail is the author of All Creation Waits, an Advent devotional that shows us 24 different animals in 24 different ways the deep mystery and abiding truth is at the heart of the Christ story. In 2020, Gail published Wild Hope, 25 vivid stories of wild animals that wake us in wonder and grief at what they suffer on a planet shaped by human choices. Welcome to the Reform Journal podcast, and I'm delighted today to talk with a person who I really admire deeply as a writer, but also as a person living in this world and delighting in this world um, out of curiosity, but also grief, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But joining me on today's podcast is Gail Boss. My name is Deb Van Dynan. I am an associate professor of English education at Hope College, and I'm one of the book review editors at the Reform Journal. And I love doing these podcast interviews, and I'm particularly excited today because Gail Boss and her books have been a fundamental part of both our Advent, my family's Advent, and Lent traditions and uh, routines. Advent for several years now, and then this year, we started reading her Lent book, which we'll talk about as a family. And so, Gail, I just want to start by saying a deep thank you and gratitude for helping shape my family. I have four children, helping shape our Lent and Advent traditions and making them more meaningful, as well as helping us live more deeply and aware in the world around us. So I'll start with saying thanks. Uh, and then I just want to introduce, for those of you who don't know Gail yet, Gail writes from Michigan's West Coast, where she was born and raised, and where she returned with her husband to raise their two sons. The landscape and its weathers, its four distinct seasons, its animals and plants, and its Great Lakes people steep her nonfiction. As a freelance writer, she writes stories for individuals and organizations about how we live and give to others around this blue-green globe. Gail is the author of an Advent devotional, All Creation Waits, and a Lent devotional entitled Wild Hope. And so we'll be talking about both of those books in today's podcast episode. Gail, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Deb. And I'm humbled and honored and almost speechless at the way you described how the books have been used and affected your family. Thank you for that. It's been so fun because many of the animals, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but many of the animals that you describe, the sketches as you call them, are animals, many of whom like our family knows a lot about, but it's been wonderful to learn new things about them. Uh, so it's added to our sense of appreciation and enjoyment and sometimes even awe as we think about what they do and how they respond to darkness or to the conditions around them. And so it's been lovely to have that deepen our sense of just our world around us. And then also as a family talking through, okay, so what did this animal teach us about hope? or about longing or about responding to darkness. And so that's been fun. Maybe fun's not the word, but meaningful, I would say, bringing us new insights into both the Advent and Lent season. So yeah, lots to say about that. Gail, uh, let me just start though by saying, how did you develop this deep love that you have for our world, for God's creation, that, a love that sort of has inspired you to write these two books? I 
was raised in the small northern Michigan town of Charlevoix before it had condominiums and multi-million dollar homes lining the lakes so that lakeshore wild places were a quick bike ride away from our front door. Both of my parents were raised in the country and my father especially loved tromping through the woods on Sunday afternoons with us kids in tow looking for mushrooms and blackberries and wildflowers. But, you know, I will say that then I wasn't so much aware of loving the natural world as I was just being in it a lot. Mm -hmm. What I was aware of as a child was that I had a stronger attachment to animals than other people seem to have. I cried when my father and uncles hung up and gutted the deer that they shot during deer season. I cried when the fish we caught were thrown in the cooler and they thrashed around until they suffocated. I wanted to sleep in the barn with my cousin's pony, but I learned very quickly that my responses were foolish. Uh, so I didn't talk about my attachment, my responses to animals. I kept them very much repressed. Then when I had children, I noticed that they were having the same responses that I had had as a child. And I quickly wanted to encourage that attachment, those responses in my children, which led me to think, well, maybe I can encourage that love for animals in myself again too. And I found that when I opened up the door to animal love again, it came roaring out of the sub-basement with a fierceness, and I let it come as an adult. It hasn't been until an adult that I've, being an adult, that I've reconnected with it. I love that use of the word roaring, uh, Gail. That's beautiful. Uh, that's beautiful. And in the introductions um, to both of your books, you mentioned your boys when they were younger, um, their love for animals. And as I'm thinking about the Wild Hope book, you mentioning perhaps not as much of a love in recognizing or walking through this church season of Lent, but wanting to capitalize on, hey, they do love animals and how might... Um, we take this nurturing love of animals that I have, that I'm developing, that I see them having, and how do we sort of connect that to these spiritual experiences and moments in our church calendar? So I love seeing you talk about that for yourself, and then also how you have helped to foster that and recognize that in your sons as well. Um, Gail, how did the story of all creation waits come to be? And I know that I mentioned a little bit, you connected it with your young children at the time and finding advent calendars that we're missing something, or you just created your own. I sort of love that uh, <laughs> that response. If it's not there, just create your own. So can you talk a little bit about how that, just writing that book came to be? You published it in 2016. And yeah, talk about a little bit how it started with the advent calendar and then morphed into this book that has sold, Gail told me before we started, 25,000 copies. So yeah, would love to hear a little bit more about that story. Yeah, as you said, I tell this story at length in the introduction to that book, but here's the thumbnail version. In the mid-80s, I learned that December was not the month for counting down shopping days till Christmas. That in the Christian liturgical tradition, it was called Advent, something I hadn't known in my Protestant upbringing. In the Christian liturgical tradition, December was called Advent, and that it was a season, by contrast, of pairing away of stripping down, of going quieter, of doing, mimicking what the natural world does in early winter. And for people, that those practices of stripping down were meant for us to be able to sense 
more clearly and vividly how badly we need God's great coming, which is what Advent means. You know, Advent means the coming. Uh, so my husband and I began in the mid 80s to actually practice Advent instead of frenzy shopping and putting up lots of decorations and going to parties. We instead chose to go more slowly and quietly to simplify our lives and to try to notice in ourselves the longing that we often are distracted from, to notice the longing for more presence, C-E, not presence, T-S. Well, then when that worked fine until we had children. And then when our first son was a toddler, this going quiet and sitting still in the dark really didn't work for a very active four-year-old. So I wanted to make our practices of that. I didn't want to give up Advent. I thought, how can I make our practices of simplifying and paring down vivid to him? And I thought an Advent calendar was just the ticket. But as you mentioned, the ones I found in the stores just had pictures of the cast of the nativity or candy canes and gift packages so that they were Christmas calendars. They weren't Advent calendars. That wasn't what Advent was about. So yeah, as you said, I had no choice but to make my own Advent calendar. I found myself drawing behind each of the little cutout doors pictures of animals, animals who very literally wait in December and through much of the winter too, like the painted turtle and the snake and the loon. I knew this would engage my animal loving son at the time and sons later, and it would also engage me I, met a, I made a little book that went along with the Advent calendar in which I would offer a little bit of a poem or a song or natural history that connected that animal behind each daily door with the core of Advent. So I would tell a little bit about how Turtle is buried deep in the mud. She goes utterly still. Look how like us she really is. And the boys just loved that Advent calendar. We used it all through their growing up. In fact, they still come home some days in Advent and we still use that Advent calendar. But they learned by using that Advent calendar that Advent is about stillness and waiting and longing without me having to impose it as a Christian discipline, capital C, capital D. It didn't occur to me until my younger son was 16 that I could take this Advent calendar and the little book that accompanied it and make it into a bigger book. And when it occurred to me, I thought that would be a lot of fun, and it was. Mm. Um, and it's one of the fun things that we've enjoyed as a family is reading your beautiful words, your descriptions, a different animal for every day, but then seeing those beautiful illustrations as well. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be, how you were paired with David Klein? Yeah, I will try to keep that to the thumbnail version too, because like all good stories, it can be, it's long. Most publishing contracts, some of your readers will know, in most publishing contracts, the author has absolutely no say in who mm -hmm. illustrates the book, what the illustrations look like, even what the type font is. But I knew that if this book was going to have the, mm, the emotional draw that I wanted it to have, and that it had had for my children because it was paired with pictures, the pictures were crucial. So early on, I proposed to the editor that maybe we might possibly have a conversation about who the illustrator would be. 
And I will say the, par the people at Paraclete Press were immensely generous and gracious. And they said, well, yeah, maybe we can have a conversation about that. When it came time to illustrate the book, they sent me a portfolio of three, I believe, different illustrators. And I wrote back and said, they're all very lovely, but I don't think they're a good fit for the book. Might I propose an illustrator? And again, in graciously, they said, okay, who might you have in mind? David Klein is a woodcut artist who had illustrated a couple of articles I had written for the journal Weavings, which is which folded in, I forget what year, not so long ago. And I really liked what he did with the articles that I wrote for Weavings. So I wrote to Weavings, I, I called him up. I knew some people there too. And I said, could I have David Klein's contact information for my editor at Paraclete Press? I passed it on to Paraclete Press, David's contact information. I showed them examples of his work. I said, this guy would be great for these animals. Uh, he, had, he had done incidentally a portfolio of animals for an animal shelter in New York City. And they looked at them and they said, yeah, he's terrific and he's way too expensive. But um, I, I don't know, they, they were converted in the course of our conversation and somehow raised the extra money to pay David to illustrate the book. And he did a beautiful job. Mm -hmm. Beautiful job. And I will try yeah. posting some examples of his illustrations if I'm able to on our podcast um, episode mm -hmm. website. Um, so people can see those or, you know, to the books site so we can look at those. Thank you for that. Um, in the, we'll move from All Creation Waits to Wild Hope. And in the acknowledgement section of Wild Hope, you mentioned a friend who gave you the idea, I think, of writing Wild Hope. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that story is also in um, the introduction, I think, to Wild Hope. Again, the thumbnail is that during the advent that All Creation Waits was released in 2016, I began to think, well, what, what shall I write next? And I noticed in my prayers that I kept hearing one word over and over, and that word was suffering. And I knew that among all the kinds of suffering in the world, that the kind of suffering that was meant for me at that moment was the suffering of wild animals. I had become aware just on the margins of my mind of what biologists call the sixth mass extinction. But I really only knew about the most popularized examples like elephants being hunted and butchered for their tusks and polar bears drowning in seas without ice flows. But I really did not want to look at that. I did not want to listen to that voice, so I shushed it. Uh, then when I was home at my parents' house for Christmas that year, 2016, I saw the newest issue of National Geographic on the table and I was riffling through it and saw a picture that haunted me. It was a picture of eight baby orangutans in a wheelbarrow. Again, I knew that if I stayed with that picture in that story, I was going to be very un-Christmassy company. So I buried it in the pile of magazines and I, I tried to forget about it. And yeah, then right after Christmas, four days after Christmas, this person that I really had only met once by at that point called me and asked me to have lunch with her. Uh, so I agreed, we had lunch. And before I could even get a bite of lunch in my mouth, she handed me an article from Audubon Magazine. And she said, this is your next book. <laughs> 
And she said, I, I trust, she also added, I trust that you have discernment to refuse that idea if it's not for you. But it was an article about the imperiled shorebird, the red knot. Simultaneously, the last kind of coincidental event that the Holy Spirit shoved on my plate was that at the same time, I got two letters from strangers to me, strangers to each other, coming from opposite ends of the country, North Carolina and Seattle, but letters that asked the very same question. And they both said, would you consider writing a book about animals for Lent? I was resisting the idea left and right, but then in that question, I saw that it all was coming together, that a book about the suffering of animals because of the way we humans live was the perfect subject for a book of Lent. It engaged in a really meaningful way, confession and repentance in a more meaningful way than I'm sorry, I eat too much chocolate, I'll give it up for Lent. And um, so despite my fear of looking into the suffering of creatures, uh, some of them suffering in horrific ways because of the ways we live, because of the ways I live, I took that on as a book for Lent. So that produced Wild Hope Stories for Lent from the Vanishing. Wow. I love seeing this sort of breadcrumb trail that sort of, you know, came all together to, and this, the working of the Holy Spirit, right? To prompt you um, to listen to these voices. Yeah, it really was the work of the Holy Spirit because I was resistant at every point until I couldn't resist it any longer. I knew that something bigger than me was afoot. Well, I'm so glad you listened to that. And um, you've already talked and referenced a little bit about just the reading that you've done around the topics about different animals, but also about extinction and, you know, what scientists are writing about and what conservationists are writing about. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you decided on the animals you focused on and what kind of research and work you did? And you're clear in your books to say, this is only a sketch. This is not entirety. I had to sacrifice a lot of the details because I just couldn't do it all for each one of these sort of shorter devotionals. Um, but what was it like to choose and then to write about and then to figure out what to write about? That's just fascinating to me as a fellow writer too, about how you decided and did your research on each one of these very different yeah. animals. Yeah. Well, for all creation weights, I they needed to be animals of the northern hemisphere. And I wanted them to be animals that I could observe here in the upper Midwest in in West Michigan, in Northern West Michigan anyway. I live right on the edge of the Calvin Ecosystem Preserve and I would walk there early each morning and observe these animals in their preparations for winter. I walk there all year round, but especially in the late summer, early fall and early winter, I was observing these animals. So all of them are animals that I watched either in the Ecosystem Preserve or in my hometown in Charlevoix in Northern Michigan. Yeah, some of them, there were animals that had to be left out, but I will tell you a couple of funny stories about how the animals themselves asked to be included. Uh, the deadline for the book came up faster than I was expecting it to come up. And I, I had to write a few more animals and submit the manuscript and I, I didn't know which ones to choose, which animals to have next. So one morning, I remember specifically, I was at my prayer bench and it's right next to the French doors that look out on our backyard. And I was supposed to be having my morning prayers 
And instead, my mind was racing, thinking, what's the next animal to include? I don't know who, who to choose and how. And I heard this tapping on the wooden step outside the French doors. The first and only time I have had an animal tap on the wooden step outside the French doors. And I opened my eyes and I looked out the door and there was a cardinal sitting right beside the door and tapping on the wood of the steps going down to the backyard. And I thought, aha, the cardinal wants to be included in the book. And that animal became the next one I wrote about, I think uh, day number 23 mm -hmm. in Advent. Um, the same kind of thing happened with the red fox. So they really asked to be included in the book. Others were animals that were just favorites of mine, like the chickadee, for example, and skunks. I, I have a fondness for skunks. So that, this makes me love the stories even more. Uh, the, <laughs> the cardinal, the northern cardinal, is one of my favorite ones. I've always loved the cardinal, and I've, you know, and it's just beautiful to know more about it and know more about the coloring, you know, and things that contribute to its. Uh, daily life and living. And um, so I'm, I'm so grateful for that Cardinal to be tapping at your window. Yeah, you really did. Creation cooperates with us if we will just um, allow it in. Yes, absolutely. Um, for yeah. Wild Hope, the, if you want to talk about the inclusion of animals in Wild Hope, I can, I'll try to be brief. That too is a longer story, but because I wanted to talk about animal extinction, I wanted to talk about it as a global phenomenon. So that meant including animals from every continent, if I could, every, at least part of the world. Um, I also wanted to include animals that were being extinguished by different causes, whether it's loss of habitat or pollution or human violence. So again, the categorization there limited my choices. I wanted to include all the kinds of animals from vertebrates and invertebrates to mammals to birds. So that also limited the choices. Um, very early on with the help of my younger son in a conversation, I decided to structure the book by categories of the least of these to try to echo Jesus's saying whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. Because that's the way I think of these animals. So they are the hungry. There are animals that are we are losing because they are hungry, made hungry because the way we live are eradicating their food sources. There are hungry, the sick, the homeless, the poisoned, categories of the least of these. So um, that was a parameter I worked with as well. So all of those parameters, confining factors really were very helpful in suggesting which animals I chose. Thank you, Gail. I, I wanna pick up on that a little bit, particularly as we think about the whys of what many of these animals are going through and much of it has to do on humans and what humans have done or not done. And would love to um, just have you reflect a little bit as we think as Christians, oftentimes we talk about the importance of caring for our world. And I think that's really important. Uh, but I also think that perhaps some people who are resistant to that sometimes um, are in fact resistant to this. And I wonder sometimes how might we as Christians focus and shift the conversation a little bit to say that 
um, curiosity that comes through in your book so well, but how do we love and delight in and wonder and see animals and creation as um, all part of who we are in this world, not as, you know, dominance or, you know, like, so as we talk about caring for the world, how might we shift that focus to talking about delighting and loving and being curious and full of wonder in this world so that creation care then is this natural extension of it. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, as helpful as the stewardship model of caring for the other than human world has been, I mean, helpful in moving us away from the notion that we have the right to dominion, to dominate other creatures. I think stewardship has fallen short as a model of a full human being and a full human life. Stewardship keeps us in a position of superiority mm-hmm. over lesser beings that can't quite adequately manage their estate, their way of living. When God in Genesis is recorded as having told human beings to have dominion over the creatures, it was in the context of God's repeated pronouncement, all of these creatures are good, not just good, but very, very good. Well, with living things that are good, very good, we treasure them, we cherish them, we love them like we do our family members. And once we love them like our family members, then there's no separation between our good and and their good. If we were to see every living thing as beloved, as cherishable, as a family member, as precious, we wouldn't be clear cutting the Amazon or drilling in the Arctic. We would weep at the whales washed up with bellies full of plastic rather than thinking of it as collateral damage for our preferred way of life. We save what we love and only what we love. So you're absolutely right. We have to shift our focus to learning, and I'm sorry to say it is learning now, learning to love these creatures. I do think that love for other creatures is innate. If God asks us to care for the creation, God isn't going to ask us to do something that we aren't naturally given to do that's hard for us. God asks us to do what God has given us the ability and even the wish to do. You see that in children. I felt my connection to the natural. I felt my wish to love and protect the natural world. Um, We couldn't eat those fish, though. I mean, I, I quickly learned that my connection and my wish to protect the natural world was foolish because we couldn't eat those fish thrashing in the cooler if I were to throw them back into the lake. So I had to be shamed out of my innate love for creatures just to keep our menu intact. I think we can start with honoring kids' natural love of the creation to encourage that, their love for mud and bugs and fish and raccoons. Adults, so who want to wake up to their own innate love for the creation can spend time with kids as they're loving on the creation. For example, Saturday, I was with a five-year-old who was absolutely smitten with this praying mantis that we found when we were weeding the flower beds at our church. He wanted to make a little refuge for the praying mantis so passers-by didn't step on the bug itself. He gave his full attention to that praying mantis. Uh, The conservation paradigm that says we save what we save only what we love is true, and it has a second half that we love what we know 
Mm-hmm. So I think that the way to increase our love for creatures, if we've lost it or been shamed out of it, is to get to know them by spending time with them. Yeah, I love the it. know about them, the more we love them. And if we love them, we'll save them. Yes, and I love your comment about looking to children to foster that. I think oftentimes we think we need to help children foster a love, but you're flipping that on its head and saying, let's go back to how we experienced or loved or delighted in animals when we were younger, or let's watch children. Naturally, I love that comment too, that it comes out of us. That's just part of how God created us with this innate love for animals. And I think sometimes we lose that or are shamed out of that, as you have pointed out already. So I love the emphasis on looking to children. Well, I think for good reason, we're shamed out of it. I don't want to put too much blame on my family. In order to keep this culture in the way that it operates intact, we can't act on our love for animals as family members so much would grind so many of our industries would grind to a halt yes yeah gail let's pick up a little bit more on your comment about children and their love for animals and do you have any suggestions for families or even people who aren't reading this your books with families but i'm thinking those who are reading it with children do you have any recommendations or have you heard from other readers, how they have incorporated the books into their daily family life. And even if you're not reading with children, what are some things that you could do to help foster and bring back that childhood sort of awe and excitement for animals? As a writer, I kind of think that I've done my work if the text itself engages you. I just, as a writer, I'm going to say, well, I think the text will draw you in and it will tell you what kind of a response you need to make. But I'm not an educator, and I have heard from lots of people, educators and non-educators, about the ways they've used that in their families and in groups, adult groups, intergenerational groups, really creative ways they've used it. So any suggestions I have come from the people who have told me the creative things they're doing, like there was, this is just so far out to me and, and so amazing. I heard from a group in the Netherlands an intergenerational group that read the book, All Creation Waits. And then they took the concept of the book and they wrote a play, not about the books in all, the animals in All Creation Waits, but about the animals in their city zoo. They went and watched the animals at their city zoo. And then they wrote a play about how those animals were preparing for winter. And then they brought all those animals to the crash, to the nativity scene. They sent me pictures of, Anna, of children dressed up as hedgehogs and penguins and uh, brown bears. It was just remarkable. I thought, wow, how creative. And they really engaged that book, yes. That is a beautiful, I love that example uh, that you just shared. Not something I would have thought of, but it's to place it within. And I think that's what your books encourage us to do. I'm thinking particularly of all creation weights, but who are the animals that we see on a regular basis and what can they teach us? Uh, what can we learn from them? Um, so yeah, what's happening in the Netherlands? I think um, that's a beautiful example. One thing we've done as a family uh, is sometimes we have different family members choose an animal to read. So not going in order, but saying, hey, and, and then just explaining, why did you pick this animal? What, you know, what do you like about this animal? Or in one case, I chose writing about the, in, or reading about the bat because I don't particularly like bats. And reading the, reading the sketch about it, the devotional helped change my mind, gave me more of an appreciation uh, for what they do and who they are as animals 
which goes against some of my terrifying experiences with bats when they we found them in our house. But it's been helpful to have a bigger context with which to think about them. So that's something we've we've done as a family. Oh yeah, that makes me so happy to hear that really does what I intended really does happen. How might you suggest, if you have any suggestions that your readers continue to delight in, advocate for, and live in our beautiful world? I know that in your uh, Wild Hope, there are some resources that you recommend for people to look at. That's something that I thought was really helpful. But are there other sort of either daily practices or resources or ideas you have for your readers who read your books perhaps during Advent and Lent and say, I want to keep doing stuff like this. I, I want to keep having this focus. Yeah, I think it can start so simply. And when it starts simple, then it becomes doable. I would say just get to know the creatures close to hand. Give the honor of attention to the sparrows hopping around your sidewalk table at the coffee shop. Notice how competitive they can be and also how cooperative. You know, Meister Eckhart, that great German mystic, says that every creature, every creature is a word of God and a book about God. I think that once we begin to admire and be amazed at the small creatures right on our urban and suburban doorsteps, then like any love, it grows and it begins to take in everything that comes into its purview. So you then, after watching those sparrows, you might hear a debate on the news about whether we should reopen hunting on gray wolves and you'll want to know what's going on there. You'll want to think, what are the wolves doing and why might they be doing it? And what other solutions have been tried? Your love will have increased from sparrows to wolves just naturally because your love is growing. The important inner growth that's going on there is that we've shifted from seeing any creature as lesser than ourselves, something that we can manipulate for our own convenience or comfort or profit and instead seeing it as a word of God or a book about God. We'll see every creature as an individual, mm -hmm. as an expression of that wildly creative divine heart and mind. Mm -hmm. And I, just picking up on that, I just love the emphasis of your books of let's look to these animals and what they can teach me about these themes of hope of groaning, you know, of responding to encroaching darkness. It's so generative. L let's look at what this animal does. And, you know, what might that look like for our community or our family or my own personal, you know, experiences or, or thinking or contemplation with God. Uh, so loving how we are also, we're learning about the animals, but then also the animals are teaching us uh, mm -hmm. how to live in more deep communion with God particularly in these two moments of the church liturgical calendar, but really it extends, to, I think, to all of life. Um, thank you for that. Are you working, here's a big question, are you working on any other books or writing projects right now? Well, I am in the earliest stages of a new book project that I don't want to say too much about. I have a poet friend who says you can't let the fire out. I'm also just not sure if it can work. As a writer, you'll know, you don't know if you can if you can logistically make it work. I, I really like the shorter, like 650 word format for daily reflections because it mostly it can hold people's attention, including families, kids' attention. I will say that with the things that we've been talking about, it, it's a book that will really put the rubber to the road. If animals 
our beloved. And if God asks us to care for them as God would care for them, then who are the saints among us who are doing just that, caring in that, in ways that are costly? Costly because they buck our consumer culture. In other words, are there people showing us new ways to be with the animals that we've expected to entertain us? Or animals that suffer to test our drugs and our chemicals or animals that are kept by the tens of thousands in spaces too small for them and indoors all their lives so that we can be fed cheaply. Who are the people showing us a new way to live with animals so that both the animals and we have fuller lives, richer lives, not maybe more comfortable lives, maybe not lives that are more convenient or more profitable, but richer because the web of relationship has suddenly become far more vast and intricate and deep. If the listeners want to follow your work, Gail, and as perhaps word about this writing project comes to fruition, and we hope and pray it does, uh, how might you recommend people follow your work or, or keep stay hold of what you've been working on? Well, my first two books are excerpted and described on my website, gailboss.com, Gail with a Y, boss with two S's, <laughs> gailboss.com. Um, and there, there isn't yet and probably won't be for a long time anything on the new book. My publisher may, may despair that I am a notoriously slow writer. And I, like I say, I don't want to talk too much about that book yet. So there will be no way to hear about that book until it's out, if it ever, if it ever does come out. But you can go to my website to see lots about the other two. And it will be worth the wait if it does come someday. Um, I'm going to conclude our time is, is uh, running to a close and I'm going to include on a light question, but and maybe this is an awful question for you, Gail, but I'm wondering of all the animals you have written about, and perhaps you can talk about each book separately, but do you have a favorite animal in each one that you perhaps most enjoyed researching or writing about, or maybe after this conversation, Gail, I'm even thinking maybe the best way for me to say this is, is there an animal that you exceptionally delight in or commute, like to commune with? And yeah, just wondering if you had any that you wanted to share with us. Deb, you're a mother. That's like asking a mother to choose a favorite among children. <laughs> really. And of course, they're all unique in their own way. Um, I will say though, that there are animals in Wild Hope that I had never dreamed of before I began researching the book, like the Olm, a foot-long salamander that's blind, has no eyes, that lives at the bottom of lakes, at the bottom of caves in um, Croatia and Slovenia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, they, they are wildly exotic expressions of the mind of God to me. That was, that was really fun. Um, and also, I guess I would say really more directly in answer to your question, there are animals that I did identify with more than some others, like the Sumatran orangutan and the liaison albatrosses because of their fierce care for their children. I feel like I'm kind of a fierce mother and the fierceness they have, and then the tragedy of the ways that their children die before their eyes is really wrenched me. And then in All Creation Waits, a gentler book. I, I love all those animals too, but I would say I had this kind of identification 
surprising identification with the porcupine because he reminded me of kind of uh, the old Dutch people I knew uh, growing up where it was, and, and a spirit uh, uh, that I absorbed that I notice in myself, much to my chagrin, which is do it the hardest way possible and then accept no comfort. <laughs> So I was counseled by the porcupine that maybe I didn't have to do things that way. Mm, oh, I love it. I love thinking about, you know, perhaps what are um, aspects in animals that we are proud to identify with or that we could learn from or that I think that's all mixed in with that. And that's delightful. I'm eager to tell my family your answers to those questions. Um, I know that my husband and I traveled in Indonesia to Indonesia. We did a bike trip. And so we saw Sumatran orangutans in their natural habitat. And so that reading that was really exciting for us because we had this point of connection with it, which I, as we're talking, I'm thinking this is yet another reason to travel so that your eyes become open in many ways to other parts of the world and creatures in it that you haven't heard. But when you're able to see and have this, for us, it will sort of forever be a connection with orangutans because we were so captivated by seeing them in the wild. Uh, and, you know, our hearts are expand because of reading the horrific things that happen and the ability to continue to open up our hearts. And, I, and as we close this episode, Gail, just grateful for the way we've talked a lot about wonder, but also particularly in Wild Hope, you want your readers to grieve, to lament. Um, we're in a broken world and creatures um, experience that brokenness in really sad ways and lamentable ways. And, and yet your books are continue to be infused with hope, right? This is our Christian worldview that we see the darkness for as dark as it is, but yet we do have this hope that allows us to see beyond it or work have rationale for working um, beyond the darkness and the grief that we see, because there is a, a, a bigger story that we're part of, which I think just gives us all the more motivation to want to work towards that. And animal care is part of that. So grateful for wonder and grief that you have, you encourage your readers to experience sort of both at the same time in many ways as well. So Gail, thank you so much for your time. Um, for our readers, if you would like to buy Gail's books, they're available at you know, many different bookstores and online stores, but just, I know it's not Advent and it's not Lent as we're recording this, but it's also summer and uh, time in Michigan as I'm recording this. And I know that my family and I have just spent some time in the national parks and it also has renewed our passion and energy for seeing animals. And so uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, I say just read the books, even if it's not Advent or Lent, because no matter what time of year, there are gifts in it that I think will deepen your walk uh, with God and also our walk in the world, which is the walk with God. Um, so Gail, what a gift you are and that your words are and um, your sight and your, your view of the world. And I'm just grateful and um, thank you for gifting that to us. So thank you so much for joining us, Gail. Oh, thanks for this opportunity, Deb. Thank you for listening to the Reform Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, share this podcast, and until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you.